there is no more important responsibility than protecting human health and the environment. It is a responsibility I take very seriously. Really? Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, just to name a few of the terrestrial and streaming affiliates. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And, of course, given the unseasonably frigid temperatures in much of the U.S. today and for the next few... Thanks to a blast of another, yes, climate change-fueled blast of frigid, bone-chilling Arctic air from the now regularly unstable polar vortex that is supposed to be over the Arctic, where it has been pushed out by warm air. It is not supposed to be over the U.S. Midwest and East Coast, where it is right now. Given all of that... It might seem a peculiar day to celebrate, and I put that word in quotes, Desi Doyen, (laughs) our our 1,000th episode of the Green News Report. But, Des, uh, we will be doing so today nonetheless, a little bit later. Yes, no matter what the the actual weather is, no matter what the actual news is, we're going to celebrate our 1,000th episode, by golly. Again, celebrate in quotes yes. in that case, uh, in, including in that 1,000th uh, episode, what I think that you and I both agree is perhaps the funniest snarky comment from all of those 1,000 episodes, courtesy of a man who uh, many of us miss dearly. But I got to tell you, every time I hear this, I, I crack up. <laughs> so uh, we can look forward to that. We will also look back and forward in the GNR 1000 today, along with some messages from a few friends and a thank you or two to those who have made it possible for us to yell and scream about our climate crisis for almost 11 years now, beginning way, way back when even many progressives thought that global warming might be some kind of a hoax or an exaggeration. 
not we don't hear we used to hear from a lot of those people not so much anymore yeah i don't know what happened although on yesterday's show we did someone called in <laughs> and remember it said these the the fire up in paradise california was called caused by a space weapon a weapon from space yes I, I and fun. I didn't get to ask her why. Why would that happen? Why would someone do that? Oh, and I imagine she might say, "Oh, the government." But the, Donald Trump's government does not want to. Well, maybe his government would want to burn down California <laughs> it's now. That because I think about reasons. It. Yeah. Hello. In any event, uh, all of those thanks uh, are are all due to you, frankly, our listeners who have kept the uh, GNR one hundred percent. Listener supported with your occasional donations at bradblog.com slash donate, where if you haven't been in a while or never, please feel free to stop by today. Bradblog.com slash donate. Okay. also coming up, uh, since the assault on our environment and public health never seems to end by these corporate interests who, by the way, do not sponsor the GNR for some reason, uh, but they have taken over our U.S. government under the corrupt uh, Trump administration. Well, we've got uh, new news today on yet another astounding and underreported scheme by the Trump swamp to undermine public health and the environment for the benefit of those corporate interests, no matter how many Americans it will end up killing if their corrupt scheme is successful? Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, will be joining us shortly to explain that new deadly scheme, just so you have something else to be very worried about today, because I'm sure there's not enough. In a uh, few quick news items today here first, 95-year-old former President Jimmy Carter was hospitalized on Monday for surgery to relieve pressure on his brain after a series of falls. He is currently said to be recovering after the procedure, according to the Carter Center. According to a statement issued early on Tuesday morning, the center reports, quote, there are no complications from the surgery and that President Carter will remain in the hospital as long as advisable for observation. They say they do not anticipate any further statements until he is released from the hospital. No time is given for that hoped-for release. The Associated Press <clears throat> excuse me, reports that Carter has fallen at least three times this year. After uh, one fall in October, he was... Uh, helping to build a Habitat for Humanity house just days after he received 14 stitches at 95 years of age. He is amazing. Marantha Baptist Church, Carter's home church in his tiny hometown of Plains, Georgia, where he still lives, announced that he will not be teaching Sunday school this week, where, yes, he has continued teaching pretty much every Sunday for decades now. Of course, we send our best wishes for a speedy and full recovery, if possible, to the former president and his family at what I unfortunately know firsthand at this point uh, about this kind of surgery is a very difficult time for uh, for all of them. So our best wishes there in somewhat better news today from the Republicans stolen U.S. Supreme Court of all places. The court has denied Remington Arms Company's bid to block a lawsuit filed by families of victims of the Sandy, uh, Sandy Hook school massacre. The families say Remington should be held liable as the maker and promoter of the AR-15 style rifle that was used in the 2012 killings. 
The court opted not to hear the gunmaker's appeal. In a decision that was announced Tuesday morning, the justices did not include any comment about the case as they turned it away. Remington had appealed to the highest federal court after the Connecticut Supreme Court allowed the Sandy Hook lawsuit to proceed in March, which we covered at the time. The closely watched lawsuit has survived many legal twists and turns, moving from state to federal court and now back and repeatedly escaping bids by Remington and gun owners groups to quash it. The high court's decision is seen as a blow to the gun industry. Depending on the outcome of the case, it could open the door to gun violence victims Families suing gun manufacturers for damages, not just in the Sandy Hook case, but in many others. A 2005 federal law actually protects many gun manufacturers from wrongful death lawsuits brought by family members. That's a special carve out exclusively for the gun industry that virtually no other industry enjoys. But uh, families of victims of the elementary school shooting in uh, Newtown, Connecticut, are pushing a different approach. They are attempting to hold Remington responsible for the way that their markets, their, their products were marketed. Remington says the case, quote, presents a nationally important question about U.S. gun laws, namely how to interpret that 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. That grants broad immunity to gun makers and dealers from prosecution over crimes committed with their products. Remington uh, manufactures the Bushmaster AR-15 style rifle that was used in uh, December of 2012 to kill 20 first graders and six adults at the elementary school. The families accuse Remington of violating Connecticut's unfair trade practices laws when it, quote, knowingly marketed and promoted the Bushmaster rifle for use in assaults against human beings. The 2005 federal law that shields gun companies from liability has several exceptions, including one allowing lawsuits against a gun maker or seller that knowingly violates state or federal laws governing how a product is sold or marketed or marketed. In filings with the Supreme Court, the Sandy Hook families say Remington published promotional materials that promised military proven performance for a, quote, mission adaptable shooter in need of the, quote, ultimate combat weapons system. They also accused the company of fostering a, quote, lone gunman narrative as it promoted the Bushmaster, citing an ad that proclaimed, quote, forces of opposition bow down. You are single handedly outnumbered. Parents who lost their children on that horrible day have said it was no accident that the shooter picked the AR-15 style rifle to carry out the shooting rampage. In March, the Connecticut Supreme Court breathed new life into this lawsuit when it ruled that the families can, in fact, sue Remington for marketing a military-style weapon to civilians. That decision reversed a Connecticut Superior Court's ruling that would have ended the case. And now that the U.S. Supreme Court has declined to take up Remington's appeal, the case will return to a lower court in Connecticut. And uh, yes, if successful there, it is a a very big deal. So we will be keeping our eyes on it today. In less good news out of the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court today, 
according to a number of court watchers who were in the room uh, on Tuesday for this hearing over uh, DACA, the uh, uh, deferred action for Childhood arrivals. Thank you for childhood <laughs> arrivals. That uh, is uh, Donald Trump is basically trying to undermine, is trying to stop the protection that uh, Barack Obama had given to uh, children, uh, to kids who had come here uh, very young through no fault of their own, uh, came to this country as immigrants, uh, the protection from deferment that they had enjoyed and which Donald Trump is now trying to kill. Well, the bad news that seems to be coming out of the court today is that at least five justices on the stolen Supreme Court seem ready to cut that law down, to kill DACA entirely, uh, according to those reports. I'm sure we'll have more on that this week. And we will also have more on, yes, the impeachment hearings, the public hearings that are uh, that are underway as of Wednesday in our nation's capital. House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff sent a note to members of his committee on Tuesday establishing the procedures for this week's public hearings in the House impeachment probe of Donald J. Trump. These procedures, he writes, are consistent with those governing prior impeachment proceedings and mirror those used under Republican and Democratic House leadership for decades, he said. According to the procedures that will be on public display beginning Wednesday morning, Schiff and the Intelligence Committee's ranking member Devin Nunes, also of California, along with uh, Adam Schiff, they will both be allowed to deliver opening statements at the beginning of the hearings and uh, as will the witnesses. Then Schiff and Nunes each will hold up to 90 minutes of extended questioning of the witnesses, during which only... The two committee leaders and the committee counsels for both Democrats and Republicans may ask questions. Yes, both Democrats and Republicans, just to cut them off at the knees once uh, Republicans start whining that the procedures are unfair to them. They have not been unfair to them, even in the closed-door hearings. Despite the nonsense you have heard, even in the closed door hearings, Republicans were there all the all the, the entire time, sharing equal time with the Democrats in those closed door depositions over the past several weeks. Uh, in any event, in the uh, public uh, hearings, after the uh, that initial extended uh, those extended rounds of questioning, committee members will then each have five minutes to speak to or question the witnesses. So we'll have. Uh, long questioning from the, the the chair and the ranking member and the attorneys, and then we'll get to that familiar five-minute rule where they go around to the various uh, members who wish to ask questions or grandstand, grandstand, pontificate, whatever it is they might want to do. Besides laying out the hearing procedure, Schiff also set the parameters of the investigation to focus only on Donald Trump's efforts to use his office to get foreign governments to manufacture dirt on his political opponents. Schiff reiterated that the hearings, quote, will not serve as venues for any member to further the same sham investigations into the Bidens or into debunked conspiracy theories about the 2016 U.S. election interference as he uh, as we noted on yesterday's program that he had accused Nunes of attempting to do over the weekend 
in the uh, GOP's request for uh, testimony from Joe Biden's son, Hunter, at these public hearings and from the whistleblower whose complaint kicked off this impeachment inquiry just over a month ago. Uh, for their part, on Tuesday, Republicans on the House Intel Oversight and Foreign Affairs Committee sent out a list of talking points arguing against the impeachment of Donald Trump. To appropriately understand the events in question and, most importantly, assess the president's state of mind during his interaction with President Zelensky, they write, context is necessary. This in a memo first obtained by CNN. Four key pieces of evidence are fatal, they write, to the Democrats' allegations, stripping away the hyperbole and hysteria. These indisputable pieces of evidence show that there was no treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors as required by the U.S. Constitution. These facts are, and they list four bullet points here, the July 25 call summary, the best evidence of the conversation, shows no conditionality or evidence of pressure, they write. What transcript are they reading? Yeah, I know. That's pretty uh, obvious in well, there. Well, uh, just by way of reminder, President Zelensky talked about we want to buy uh, new weapons from you guys, Javelin missiles. And Donald Trump responded by saying, well, OK, but we need a favor from you, however. So sounds like conditionality uh, or evidence of pressure to me. But what do I know? And Pre all of the people who were witnesses on that call and corroborated it all afterward say the same all thing. said the same yeah. thing. So, OK. Uh, bullet point number two, President Zelensky of Ukraine and President Trump have both said there was no pressure on the call. Well, if the guy who robbed the bank said he didn't rob the bank, that must be evidence uh, the other guy here on the call, President Zelensky, of course, he says there was no pressure on this call. He is still beholden to the United States for those javelin weapons, for hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid. The last thing he wants to do is tick off the president of the United States. Who is known to be somewhat retaliatory. Point number three, the Ukrainian government was not aware of a hold on U.S. security assistance at the time of the July 25 call. However, multiple reports uh, from multiple sources said that, in fact, is not true. In fact, the Ukrainian government was aware of the U.S. Uh, plan to and then, uh, in fact, practice of withholding assistance for uh, nearly $400 million in military aid that Congress had allocated to Ukraine. Yes, the Ukrainian government did know about that, according to many reports prior to the time of that phone call on July 25. And uh, the fourth and final bullet point here from the Republicans in their talking points, President Trump met with President Zelensky and U.S. security assistance flowed to the Ukraine in September of 2019, both of which occurred without Ukraine investigating President Trump's political rivals. So they got the money anyway. So clearly there was no crime here, no high crime or misdemeanor. Problem with that, of course, is that uh, the money flowed to Ukraine in September of 2019, long after media reports had come out criticizing uh, the administration for withholding that money to Ukraine. So if that's all they got, those four talking points, 
it don't sound like they're heading into these public hearings with much. The open hearings will begin on Wednesday with Trump's acting ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, and his deputy assistant secretary of state, George Kent, giving testimony, followed by public testimony on Friday by former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, the longtime civil servant who is said to have been pushed out of her job with false claims by Donald Trump's allies uh, who felt that she would get in their way. Uh, their way of this plan to extort Ukraine for dirt on Trump's political opponents. We will no doubt be covering noteworthy developments from those public impeachment hearings, only the fourth such hearings in this nation's history, on our next broadcast. Meanwhile, while everyone is understandably focused on that historic event, the Trump administration is hoping you really don't notice their newest scheme to undermine public health and safety at the EPA by undermining the very underpinnings of scientific research that has been used for decades to establish regulations on toxic pollution in our air and our water. That shameful and much less noticed story is next on the broadcast as we're joined by a longtime scientist who argues the administration's new scheme to undermine it will be a boon for polluting corporate industries, but will, yes, devastate public health and environmental protections. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. The factor is science. The factor is science. Science is real. Science is real. Science is real. Yes, it is. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, in our 999 episodes to date of our six-minute Green News Report feature, the 1,000th of which is coming up at the end of today's program, we have relied quite heavily over the past nearly 11 years on key scientific studies cited and used by governmental agencies to set rules and regulations and laws to protect public health and the environment on all matters of air quality, water quality, climate change, and countless other key issues important to safeguarding the health and, yes, general welfare of Americans. 
That, however, may all be about to change if the corporate-captured Trump administration's Environmental Protection Agency has its way with a newly revealed draft proposal for a disturbing new rule regarding how the EPA may or may not consider science, yes, science, when setting health standards for air and water and much more for the nation. The change, according to the New York Times' Lisa Friedman, no relation, but I'd be proud if there was. She's great. This change is part of a broader administration effort to weaken the scientific underpinnings of policymaking. Senior administration officials have tried to water down the testimony of government scientists, publicly chastised scientists who have dissented from President Trump's positions, and blocked government re researchers from traveling to conferences to present their work. In this case, the administration is taking aim at public health studies conducted outside the government that could justify tightening regulations on smog in the air, mercury in the water lead in paint and other potential threats to human health. The original proposal for this rule, this newly proposed rule, was actually unveiled by former EPA administrator and industry shill Scott Pruitt. He had made publication of underlying scientific data when used to justify new regulations a top priority and tried to rush a proposal through the regulatory system back in 2018. Pruitt, however, resigned in July of last year and his successor, coal industry lobbyist turned EPA chief Andrew Wheeler, delayed the, tr the so-called transparency rule and suggested that the EPA needed time to address the chorus of opposition from environmental and public health groups after some 600,000 comments mostly opposing the rule were submitted to the EPA during its initial public comment period. But a draft of a revised version of the regulation headed for White House review right now and obtained by The New York Times shows that the administration intends to widen the scope of the original regulation, not narrow it. The new, even more draconian rule, largely supported only by corporate industries, would significantly limit the scientific and medical research that the government can use to determine public health regulations, overriding protests from scientists and physicians who say the new rule would undermine the scientific underpinnings of government policymaking. A new draft of the EPA proposal titled Strengthening Transparency in Regulatory Science would require that scientists disclose all of their raw dat data, including confidential medical records, before the agency could consider an academic study's conclusions. Trump EPA officials, in what seems an Orwellian turn of phrase to me at least, called the plan a step toward transparency and said the disclosure of raw data would allow conclusions to be verified independently. We are committed to the highest quality science, Administrator Wheeler told a congressional committee in September. Good science, he said, is science that can be replicated and independently validated, science that can hold up to scrutiny. Well, that certainly sounds good, doesn't it? Transparency, reproducibility, and application of current scientific knowledge are paramount to providing the foundation required for sound regulations. 
That from the American Chemistry Council, an industry group hoping to curb EPA regulations. Uh, in their comment to the agency in support of the plan last year, one of the very few public comments that regarded it favorably at the time. The new measure, however, would make it more difficult to enact new clean air and water rules because many studies detailing the links between pollution and disease rely on personal health information gathered under confidentiality agreements and unlike Scott Pruitt's original version of the proposal in uh, 2018, this one could apply retroactively to public health regulations that are already in place. Paul Billings, the senior vice president for advocacy at the American Lung Association, warns, quote, this means the EPA can justify rolling back rules or failing to update rules based on the best information to protect public health and the environment, which means more dirty air and more premature deaths. But the fossil fuel industry and some Republican lawmakers have long criticized a number of groundbreaking medical studies cited as evidence for curbing mercury from power plants, which is released into the air and settles into our drinking water, and lead paint dust that is tied to behavioral disorders in children. The new rule, if adopted, might make such studies inadmissible when even existing regulations come up for renewal. The new version of the Trump EPA rule does not appear to have taken any of the opposition from the majority of those 600,000 public comments last year from tens of thousands of health experts and organizations into consideration in drafting the new, more draconian version of this rule. At a meeting of the agency's Independent Science Advisory Board this summer, Wheeler said he was, quote, a little shocked at the amount of opposition to the proposal, but that he was committed to finalizing it anyway, because of course he is. Among those quoted by Lisa Friedman in The New York Times is Michael Halpern, deputy director for the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, a nonprofit advocacy group. Uh, he says, quote, it was hard to imagine that they that they could have made this worse, but they did. This, he added, is a wholesale politicization of the process. In a blistering statement released on Monday, the director of the Union of Concerned Scientists, their Center for Science and Democracy, Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, charged the Trump administration has a clear pattern of sidelining science and undermining public health protections. If this rule is finalized, it would be one of the most damaging and far reaching policy changes enacted by the administration. Joining us now is Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, who, before joining the nonprofit Union of Concerned Scientists, served as the Northeast Regional Administrator of the National Marine Fisheries Service at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. He has authored dozens of peer-reviewed studies and currently teaches at the University of New Hampshire. Dr. Rosenberg, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Nice to be with you. So Wheeler and Trump's EPA here are couching this as an important effort to improve transparency in scientific decision making at the EPA. But it sure feels a lot to me anyway, like some of the administration's other uh, tricks to benefit corporate interests and partisan political motives like uh, claiming citizenship data is needed in the census to improve enforcement of the Voting Rights Act or 
that a power plant must keep a stockpile of coal on hand at all times for national security purposes, or even that uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in military assistance must be withheld from Ukraine in order to root out political corruption in their country as opposed to ours. Uh, Is there any actual sound scientific or environmental uh, improvement reasoning to implement a rule like the one they are now proposing? In a word, no. There's absolutely no scientific basis for doing this. And one of the ways that you can tell that, it's not just my word for it, but they put no justification in the rule. They didn't even identify what problem they're trying to solve. And there's no analysis of what the impacts of putting this rule in place would do. There's not even analysis of how much it would cost the agency. But more importantly, how would it affect the agency's work? Absolutely not a single word how it would impact the agency's ability to put public health protections in place. So there is no merit to this proposal at all. This is a, an idea that's been around for a long time, and it seems to be a zombie because it never goes away, <laughs> no matter how bad it is. I suspect, of course, that this will be challenged in court, as so many of these rules yes. of the EPA and these other agencies have been. Uh, and I know you're not uh, a lawyer here, but don't they have to justify reasons for making these rules when they propose them? Wouldn't this uh, cut them down in court if they do not have that sort of justification? Well, I mean, a court, the court challenge, it definitely will be challenged in court um, without question. But, of course, that's always an uncertain process. Courts often defer to agency expertise. Now, it is interesting here that they have, in this supplemental rule, clarified some issues from the first release of the rule. Mm-hmm. And in clarifying, as my colleague said, it, it, they've made it quite a bit worse, and they've broadened the scope. But I think they've done that clarification because immediately a court would say, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. This is unclear. Um, so they've done that in part because they are claiming, I believe falsely, that they're addressing some of the 600,000 comments that came out, but also because they know that this, uh, you know, the, the earlier slapdash version of the rule um, really wouldn't even pass um, you know, legal muster, even in a very friendly court. So in in practical terms, when Wheeler and and Trump's EPA here and the industries that they work for, apparently, uh, when they discuss the need to release the, uh, quote, underlying data, they say it's needed for, quote, sound science. What are they actually talking about? And what is the problem with making all of the scientific data uh, cited for a new rule uh, transparent to the public? So what they're talking about is, uh, this is a sleight of hand, of course, as you pointed out before. They're claiming this is about transparency. And in order to meet their claim of transparency, they say that the raw data, in other words, the original data that is going to be analyzed in a study as collected from study participants or from experiments, be made fully available to the public and all of the computer code and any modeling um, analyses also be made fully available to the public. It might be it was proprietary software, but that doesn't matter. You have to make it fully available to the public. I can't wait for somebody to say, well, we need to see the code for Microsoft so Word, Word because, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's how the paper was written. So they're claiming you need to do that to be confident in the study, which is just nonsense. I mean, I've been a scientist for 35 years. I've written 
you know, 150 papers that mm-hmm. have been peer-reviewed. I peer review, and I'm a journal editor all the time. I never ask for the raw data, the so-called raw data. That means the, mm-hmm. the data set that you're going to analyze that was collected. The reason I don't is because what I want to know is how was the information collected? What are the characteristics of that data, the so-called statistical characteristics? How is it going to be analyzed? What are the problems in the the methods for collecting the data, the Mm -hmm. study design, the analysis, and do the conclusions stand up when you look at the results from whatever methods are applied? And from that, that's a standard kind of what we would call a peer review. Mm -hmm. From that, you identify potential problems in a paper, and it's quite common for people, once they even submit a study for publication, to redo it two or three times. What they're claiming is that the raw data must be available to the public so the public can analyze it for themselves. So I don't know what you do on weekends. I mean, do you analyze air pollution raw data and do the statistical modeling? And well, I'm sort of strange. I might do some of that on my weekends, but most people, I suspect, do not do that sort of thing. Uh, And the only people who would do that are the regulated industries and Mm -hmm. maybe interest groups like ours, but there's not much point in, in reanalyzing the raw data. And, you know, one of the things they're calling for in this rule is to reanalyze the data with exactly the same data, exactly the same methods, um, to see if you get the same answer. In other words, you should check the investigator's math. But they want all of the underlying data. When they're talking about right. the underlying data, uh, if we're, we're, if we're talking about, for example, health studies that they, uh, you know, look at, yeah. uh, you know, people who have contracted lung disease and try to find right. out, I guess, if they're if they live in a certain area or they had exposure to uh, certain toxins and so forth. What the EPA, if I am, if I'm understanding this correctly, what the EPA would be calling for in a case like that is not only do we want the information about, you know, how old these people were and when they got sick and so on and so forth, but we want their names, their medical records, their private information as well. That must be turned over. And if it isn't, we can't use that study. Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. That's correct. So they're not saying that you must turn over the information. What Mm -hmm. they're saying is if you don't turn over the information, that's fine. We'll just ignore your analysis. (laughs) And and so they've said no, we wouldn't we wouldn't ever want to break privacy rules or take private information, but we just will ignore the analysis. So imagine you know much of what EPA does is look at the effect of a contaminant mm-hmm. in the air or the water to a broader population, what's called epidemiology. When you try to do broad you know um, population level impact right. of a certain action. Well, the way that you do that is to collect, you know, what is the health um, records for a lot of people in an area that have been exposed at different levels Mm -hmm. to some contaminant. Well, they're saying, well, we don't really want to do that. And what industry has always maintained is, well, you can't regulate us unless you can draw a straight line between, you know, exactly what we did and exactly the disease or health Mm -hmm. outcome that someone had. But, of course, the world is a more complicated place. So you often use these population-level studies to say, do we believe there's a risk to the population? And they're done very carefully. And you use the overall weight of evidence. You don't use one study. You use multiple studies, laboratory Mm -hmm. studies, field studies, studies from other countries in similar conditions and so on. And you put it together in the weight of evidence. 
The EPA is now saying, well, forget about all that. That's what scientists would do. All we care about is that the data is public. So <laughs> if the data is public, we'll give the most weight to that study. Yeah. And if the data isn't public, we'll ignore it. And, and, and there might be some things in between, and we'll consider that, but we won't really. You know, the most important thing is the data is public, not how well the science was done. Right, even the data is publicly available. So even if that science shows a, a very serious public health problem, if for whatever reason, because the study was done over time with confidentiality right. agreements with the uh, various patients, that science must be ignored and cannot be used in either new rulemaking procedures or when some of these older regulations come up for review, if they were based right. on some of those studies, We'll now have to throw out, disregard those studies, and with it, I guess, many of those uh, rules and regulations, if they no longer have the science to support them, because we have thrown out the science that was used to support them. Exactly right. And, this is and amazing. of course, rules are revised all of the time. Yeah. So that would mean that slowly you would erode away the public health protections that have been so incredibly successful. That's yeah. why the air is cleaner. That's why the water is cleaner. That's why drinking water is safer. But we still have many problems. And then the EPA, in their response to the New York Times article, did a little bit of a sleight of hand and said, no, we never implied that it would apply retroactively to regulations because what they implied was it would apply rec retroactively to the science that those regulations are based <laughs> on, so when they come up again, Unbelievable. they can remove it. it so they're, they're playing a lot of games here. Uh, well, I, I'm, it knocked me over with a feather, yeah. uh, Dr. Rosenberg. Uh, <laughs> is, it, is it fair to say, then, uh, and you sort of uh, referenced this here, uh, and in your own uh, academic work and your, your many peer-reviewed studies, that what they're doing is going beyond the standard procedure for, you know, certain private information that would be withheld or redacted in just normal scientific studies, and that the EPA, right. what they're actually doing here is going beyond decades of accepted scientific norms right. with this requirement. I'm right about that? You are right about it. And they've said in this supplemental rule, well, we can use some of the methods that are used in medical studies by the CDC and other places, which are enormously expensive and only applied to government-collected scientific data, um, and the EPA has no estimate of how much that would cost and how it would impact their mission. So even the people who maintain those systems say this is not practical for what the EPA is doing, but the EPA has just ignored that. And in, I mean, yeah. they're just charging ahead. And uh, just in direct, practical terms, why are they doing this? Well, this has been a long time part of the what we call a disinformation playbook that many industries and special interests use. It was devised by people working for the tobacco industry to fight secondhand smoke regulation. And mm. one of them, in fact, was quoted, um, Stephen Malloy was quoted in yeah. the New York Times article. And, you know, he's also been quoted in the past of saying, if we can get this into place, they'll never be able to regulate secondhand smoke or anything else because it will set up an impossible barrier. That's his goal. Yeah. That's the goal. So, you know, people who are dealing with things like particulate matter would like something like this in place because it wouldn't enable you to reduce um, the standards for particulate matter quite so easily. And particulate matter kills 100,000 people a year. 
I purposely did not quote Steve Malloy. He's a uh, renowned uh, science denier, climate change right. denier, and so forth. Uh, I fear, uh, Doctor, that uh, this is just the first rollout of this uh, this this use of the, this misuse, really, of science uh, at the EPA, and that other federal agencies, if this is successful, will also be forced to adopt a similar. Uh, rulemaking yep. procedure that ultimately bars certain scientific studies from use. Do you share that concern? I share exactly that concern. And my concern, you know, the Trump administration has had a whole series, more than 120 attacks on science that we have cataloged. And they may be doing this administratively um, already. That's a real problem. But if they put it in a rule like this, that means future administrations would have to do the same thing until they could unwind all this mess that they've created. And so this is a real risk. They've done some other things that are, are mm -hmm. pretty terrible and pretty violent to the process of using science to support public health and safety, but this is really right up there at the top. It is, however, something that uh, could, in theory, if it is uh, adopted, uh, subsequently be rolled back by the next Democratic or uh, even Republican. Uh, if Either way, hopefully science-believing administration. The next one that comes in could fairly easily uh, roll these sorts of, uh, of, of rules back, correct? That is correct. Or a, a court could stop it, but mm -hmm. in the meantime, a lot of people are going to get hurt. Is there anything, uh, lastly, here that the public can do at this point on this new rule? You know, we often point people to, uh, I think it's regulations.gov, where they can ring in right. with public comments. But, you know, the previous less draconian version received some 600,000 comments against it uh, for the most part. Uh, so, I mean, what what is the public to do here if someone's listening to this conversation and thinks this is as outrageous as it sounds and wants to take action? So I think there are really two things that, uh, three things perhaps, that are important. The first is that public comments, even if the agency did not respond and adhere to the public comments, those are now part of the administrative record, so a court is going to see that. So to the extent that those comments are substantive and say, this is this is a study that I have done mm -hmm. that would be excluded, and that would do real damage, that's part of the administrative record. So it is important to comment, even if the agency doesn't do what you ask them to do. It's also really, really important for people to reach out to their elected representatives and say, first of all, this is un unacceptable, and, and I want you to look into it. I want to hear you question this in hearings. This makes no sense to me. It puts me and my community and my children at risk. And elected officials do, believe it or not, still listen to their constituents if you are active and, and helpful and coherent and say, you know, this really concerns me and I'm in your district. Um, and the third thing is to try to educate a broader public. This isn't about transparency. This is about restricting the ability of the government to do the job that we want them to do. That is to protect public health and safety. And people need to know that. And they need to contact, you know, everyone needs to ultimately mm -hmm. contact their elected officials and vote and, you know, participate in democracy to push back against these kinds of actions. Participate in democracy. There is an idea. And, of course, as we often argue on the show, it has uh, it is much more than just voting every four years. There's a lot that we almost do to help uh, save this 
precarious democracy we all now live in. Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, a Ph.D. He is the director of the Center for Science and Democracy at Union of Concerned Scientists. You can get more information on their work and support their work at ucsusa.org. And you can find uh, Dr. Rosenberg on the Twitters at A.A. Rosenberg U.C.S. Thank you, Doctor. Really appreciate you joining us here today. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the near future. Anytime. It's very nice to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Okay. Well, you know, it, it, it seems incredible to me. It feels like, Desi Doyen, that this is one of these rules that is going to get knocked down by the courts like so many other uh, rules that they have slapped together, that the administration has slapped together. It doesn't seem like this could possibly go through. It doesn't seem like it, but remember, as you've said, the stolen Supreme Court, if it makes it there, I believe that all bets are off, even when it comes to something like air pollution, which kills 200,000 Americans prematurely every single year. It's kind of important, but... You know, we can't yeah. trust the Supreme Court anymore. No, we can't. And I, I mean, I wouldn't have thought that they would be uh, ready to knock down DACA, as the reports out of the court on Tuesday seem to suggest that they uh, are ready to kill that. And those protections for tens of thousands of young immigrants who who came here and who uh, have lives here, who have never known their home countries. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I've signed up to work in the military and everything else. And yet it sounds like this uh, stolen Supreme Court is ready to do that, too. So can't put uh, nothing past these folks. Can't count count anything out. Uh, However, we can count to (laughs) 1000, which we do uh, coming up after this break in our uh, latest Green News report, our 1000th. GNR. That is next with Desi Doyen and me right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. been a rough day in the middle of a rough week, in the middle of a rough month, rough year, (laughs) rough uh, administration, rough decade, frankly. Oh, yeah. But over that decade, uh, we have been able to, uh, frankly, knock the crap out of the corporate interests who are trying to undermine this planet, uh, humanity, the world via our, yes, independent Green News report going on 11 years now, Desi Doyen. I know. Thanks to you. <laughs> and you. Thank and you for uh, for putting it into the show. I do recall when uh, in the early days I said, well, do you think we'll have enough uh, enough to, to fill up six minutes twice a week? And with... I laughed and laughed and laughed you and did. said, you betcha. 
The only problem now is like how to fit it all into those six minutes. Which we twice never a can. Week, so, we of course, can. always go to greennews.bradblog.com to see all the stories that we weren't able to cover because there are so many of them. They're all fascinating. All of the Green News extras that Desi takes time to link to and uh, it, it spends a lot of time making sure that everyone at least has no excuse for not knowing what the hell <laughs> is going on. And uh, we do that once again in our latest 1,000th Green News Report. Looking back and looking forward at 1,000 episodes of the GNR. All of that and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and the funniest snarky comment in our 1,000 episodes. And in 50 years, I don't want my grandson, Joe, to turn to me and say, Grandpa, you were in the Senate and you knew about the severity of climate change. Why didn't you do anything to stop it? And also, why are you still alive? You're 115 years old. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I miss Al Franken. Anyway, as noted, this is our 1,000th episode of the Green News Report, which you originally roped me into in February of 2009. <laughs> so yeah. congratulations uh -huh. on that. Uh, to help us celebrate the milestone, if we can call it that, our friend, longtime former Weather Channel meteorologist and extreme weather record tracker, Guy Walton sent some facts and figures to help us put things in perspective today. He uh, notes that when we started in February of 2009, levels of CO2 in the atmosphere were about 387 parts per million. In 2019, more than 10 years later, those levels have shot up now to 410 parts per million, which is a lot higher than climate scientists say we should be at. And when we started in 2009, Walton reports, global surface temperatures had already warmed one degree Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And in the nearly 11 years since then, the planet has warmed an additional two-tenths of a degree Celsius on average, which has brought with it more frequent back-to-back -back extreme weather disasters. Superstorm Sandy, Hurricanes Maria, Harvey, Michael, the California fires, the Mississippi River floods, to name just a few in the U.S. alone, that have cost the United States billions of dollars in damages. At this rate, Walton says, we are likely to reach the threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius warming above pre-industrial temperatures by 2030. The year scientists say we must already be on track to cut our emissions in half. Guy also notes we are now seeing far more new daily high temperature records and far fewer daily low temperature records being broken as the planet warms than we were when we started in 2009. So Desi Doyen, clearly we have failed. <laughs> yes, we have. Uh, Guy also adds, congratulations on number 1000. May the Green News Report become the Green New Reality Report by episode 2000. And our friend Dr. Michael E. Mann of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. He's the guy who created the infamous hockey stick graph. He sends in a note to say, I want to congratulate Desi and Brad, in parentheses, <laughs> on this milestone during a time when our public discourse has become polluted by vested interests and disinformation. 
Desi and Brad have used a foghorn of razor-sharp wit and incisive commentary to cut through the morass in their effort to inform the conversation about the existential environmental challenges, including climate change, that we face today. He adds a thousand thank yous for the clarity and moral vision they have provided to their listeners. I look forward to celebrating the 2000 milestone and many more beyond that. Thank you. Michael Mann. Thank you, Dr. Mann. So what else do we have to mark GNR 1000? Well, when we started in 2009, international negotiations for the U.N. Paris Climate Accord were on the verge of collapse and were barely snatched out of the fire at the last minute by President Obama. By 2016, the landmark agreement to cut global emissions was signed and in full effect. But last week, President Trump filed formal paperwork to withdraw the U.S. from the accord by next year. In 2009, when we started, Tesla was the only car company to offer an all-electric car. Today, most car makers offer or plan to offer multiple all-electric car models, SUVs, semi-trucks, and some, like Volkswagen, have even announced they will be phasing out conventional gas cars entirely. So we haven't failed completely. And the economics of renewable energy have improved astronomically fast. The cost of energy from utility-scale solar plants alone has dropped nearly 90% over the last 10 years, making it cheaper than even natural gas in some areas, and the price is still falling. And finally, when we started, there was little media coverage and not much public engagement on climate change. Today, we have marches in the streets demanding governments act on climate change with the surge of activism and global climate strikes to address climate change. It's a sign of the times that Collins Dictionary named Climate Strike its word of the year from 2019. So we've gotten somewhere in 1,000 episodes. You got it. Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find follow and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. And our great thanks to those of you who have kept us going for 1,000 episodes completely listener-supported by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your 1,000th Green News Report. I'm gonna soak up the sun Rock on, Desi Doyen. Indeed. And you know, one thing that has changed that we did not have time to fit yeah. in there was the politics of climate change. Remember, it didn't used to even be a part of the presidential debates no. at all. And now it is a very big component of at least the Democratic presidential yeah. primary yeah. race. We'll see if it makes it into the uh, general debates, <laughs> the general yeah. election debates next year. Uh, but uh, you know, the other thing is I'm I'm very proud of the fact that we have been covering and warning people about climate change uh, for more than a decade now uh, when I, I don't know of any other outlet, uh, media outlet anywhere, has been focusing on it as regularly and as directly as we have on the Green News Report. For as long as we have. And even on the broadcast. All right, that is it. Thank you. Congratulations, Desi Doyen, Thank our you. producer. My thanks to our guest today, Dr. Andrew Rosenberg of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and to all of you for spending a portion of of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, we make them all available for free to you at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our efforts at bradblog.com slash donate. 
Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. She is Green News Report. And that is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>